Chase doesn't mean you don't have any sex necessarily. If a couple is married, they could have all the sex they want and they could still be chased. Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage Podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryans, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, it's been quite a series that we've been through the last several podcasts. We talked about romanticism, and then we talked about lies and delved deeply into the various meanings of those words and those concepts. Uh, today, I'd like to talk about another hot topic. Let's talk about sex. Ah, uh, okay. One of the things I've noticed that is if a word has several meanings and one of them is sexual, the sexual one tends to dominate. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We'll do it in my own little common errors in English usage spin on it. I'm going to talk about pairs of words Sometimes these words have a sexual connotation or sexual meaning, and then there's another meaning of it that is out of that realm. Um, but these are pairs of words that people commonly confuse. We've talked about commonly confused terms before, but this is a little theme-oriented commonly confused terms. And the first one I wanted to talk about, uh, if you're ready, are you ready? Yep. Okay. The first one I want to talk about is the word perverse versus the word perverted. Now, you cover this in the book. What do we say about that? Well, part of it comes from just that phenomenon I was talking about a moment ago, that both of these come to mean abnormal or irregular sexual activities or desires. Um, and they get not only confused with each other, but people don't understand that they can have other meanings. Perverse has a much more broad general meaning. Uh, it can mean being uh, stubborn, and that was an old-fashioned one, but you don't hear too much anymore. Um, Wrong-headed, the example I gave in the book is Josh perversely insisted on carving wooden replacement parts for his 1958 Ford's engine. Mm. Both of them have to do with turning aside. If you think veering and veering off <laughs> in an, a mistaken direction, that's what's in their roots. And it really works better if you're talking about different kinds of sexuality. It's always used negatively. People who try to increase tolerance of various sexualities wouldn't use the word perverted to describe them. But if you are using that term, perverted is probably better than perverse for this sort of thing. But even perverted can be used as a verb. Uh, usually it's used as an adjective, but it can be used as a verb in a non-sexual sense. Um, the example in the book is the bake sale was perverted by Gladys into a fundraiser for her poker habit. So to redirect something in a, in a wrong direction or improper, immoral, or illegal direction would be to pervert it, to make a misuse of it. Sometimes you run into authors who are trying to render dialectical speech making fun of the ignorance of the speaker, and they'll have people saying he's a prevert. I don't know if that's really very common. I've never heard anybody actually say that, but it certainly turns up in fiction. Yeah, that prevert thing is kind of a strange twist on it. I don't know where that comes from exactly. Uh, the word itself, 
perverted, perverse. The uh, Latin root means contrary, turned away. So they have this sort of idea that they're outside of the mainstream. Right. This same concept. And so, yeah, you're right. So sexual deviance could be perverted behavior. Uh, but you're also right that uh, psychological texts always change their ideas, right, about what's perverted behavior. Uh, it used to actually be that homosexuality was considered perverted behavior. Right. But you wouldn't have to go very far to find some people that still insist on that. Well, sure. They are among us still, but over time, I think we'll see that go away. Uh, the next word pair that I have, also related to sex, I have the word pair celibate and chaste. And these are commonly mixed up and used interchangeably. What's the difference? Well, they both have to do with abstaining from sexuality somewhat. But a celibate person, technically, especially I mean, religious context, is somebody that's unmarried. And they may have made a vow of celibacy. Now, the vow of celibacy is not only to abstain from marriage, but to abstain, goes without saying, from other kinds of sexuality as well. So a celibate person could be chaste. But the Catholic Church has had cases where uh, men whose wives had died and women whose husbands had died take vows of celibacy. So it can mean that you're not going to get remarried, but it has more to do with marriage. Chaste doesn't mean the same thing. Celibacy uh, assumes that at least for the period which is being covered by the vow of celibacy, that you're not going to have any sex. Chaste doesn't mean you don't have any sex necessarily. If a couple is married, they could have all the sex they want and they could still be chaste. It's more or less a religious term that says improper sex, um, sex that uh, is not sanctioned by marriage is unchastity. However, it's also generally used to say that a person who is chaste is somebody who just pretty much doesn't want to have anything to do with sex or sexuality. So there's a big fuzzy overlap between the two, but generally it is possible to be celibate without being chaste and to be chaste without being celibate. Well, I like that fine distinction. And as you point out in the entry in the book, chaste, C-H-A-S-T-E, having the same pronunciation as C-H-A-S-E-D, you can make an amusing mistake there or a very tired pun. <laughs> That's commonly used attempted humor, I guess. Right. Well, can we go off in the other direction, away from all this chastity? I want to talk about the word pair lustful and lusty. These are two terms that commonly get used interchangeably, but maybe they shouldn't be used interchangeably. What do you say about that? Yeah, um, lusty means uh, being vigorous and lively and enthusiastic. Uh, lusty applause for instance, uh, but lustful means filled with desire, sexual desire in particular. So there are all kinds of things that can be lusty, just vigorous and uh, healthy and lively, but not necessarily sexual. And so if you're trying to refer to somebody that you think of as being highly sexual, lusty is not the appropriate word. Mm -hmm. Somebody with a good appetite could have a lusty appetite. That's exactly right, yeah. 
but uh, they're not necessarily lustful at that moment. <laughs> so let's keep that straight. Um, I have a couple more of these to go through. I think there might be more to say about the word pair sensual and sensuous. These two words overlap quite a bit, but it's worth knowing the subtle distinctions. Uh, sensual has to do with the senses and it usually relates to physical desires and experiences. Now, some of those can be sexual, but more often it's used for aesthetic pleasures, like listening to a piece of sensuous music, like the climax at the end of Daphnis and Chloe, for instance, would be a classic example for me. Um, although that gets so raucous that it's almost beyond the realm of sensuous. Um, one could talk about a sensuous fabric, for instance, that feels really great. But sensual is more often uh, associated with more sexy or erotic kind of things. And sometimes it's used in a negative sense that this was a merely sensual experience, meaning it was superficial. It wasn't something depth and involving a lot of emotion. But you wouldn't use sensuous in that context. Yes, that's right. We're not going to um, say that I had a very sensual experience unless it's got a connotation that's a little bit beyond sensuous. Well, let's talk about another one of these commonly confused ones. And this is not related to sex. We're going to transition into talking about music. And I suppose we could talk about sensuous music. Or you just did. But uh, this word pair that commonly gets confused one of them does definitely have a sexual connotation. Uh, we have crescendo and climax. What's the difference there? Okay, this is a kind of a picky one, and um, it pops up particularly in technical discussions of music with people who have musical training. So uh, it's not something you always have to worry about, but it is something that's worth knowing about. If something's getting louder or more intense, is going through a crescendo. That's an Italian word that means growing. A lot of the traditional people object for people who use it to mean climax because the crescendo of what is what leads up to the climax. A crescendo of cheers grows until it reaches a climax, a peak at the top. To crescendo as a verb is pretty common but a lot of old-fashioned types really disapprove of it. So instead of saying that the orchestra crescendoed, you'd say the orchestra plays a crescendo. Even that doesn't sound quite right. I think it's pretty acceptable now, but there are some authorities that get really picky about saying crescendo is not a verb. And of course, climax has the sexual meaning, which links us to our earlier topic, but not crescendo. That sexual connotation of the sexual meaning of climax may lead people to shy away from it when they're talking about an orchestra. That could be. The orchestra reached a crescendo. Uh, <laughs> if you say the orchestra reached a climax, you are inviting an entirely different interpretation of what you're talking about. Yeah. So in the vernacular, I think it's commonly accepted that people will actually say that, that the orchestra reached a crescendo. But in fact, it's worth knowing that in shades of meaning, you don't reach a crescendo. A crescendo is this building up period right. where the music is getting louder and louder and more intense and more intense, building up to that climax. 
It's just that the word climax has been hijacked by this other meaning related to sex so that people, I think, are veering away from it when they're talking about these sorts of things. But uh, it's worth knowing the difference, isn't it? Yes. And I mentioned a moment ago that Ravel's Daphnis and Chloe, I'm not sure that it's so much sensuous as is a climax and you have to hear a performance with a chorus there's also a purely instrumental version of that piece but if you hear the uh, suite number two with a chorus doing the oohs and ahs at the end it's pretty amazing well let's stick with uh, the music theme and we're doing word pairs of commonly confused terms and i know this is one that's near and dear to your heart i like this one because there are a lot of usage guides out there, but uh, you allow yourself some leverage for some entries that are not commonly put into usage guides, and this is just one of them. Uh, music versus singing. Now, people will often say there wasn't any music in the program. It was just singing. <laughs> so this is a usage point. What do you say about that? My wife is a singer, a soprano, and she was the one that first pointed this out to me. One of her friends said that her church didn't allow any music, only singing. Which mm-hmm. <laughs> made her indignant, very rightly. Um, I also had students tell me that listening to a piece, that the singing interfered with the music. <laughs> and by that, they meant they didn't like the vocal part. They wanted to hear only the instrumental part. So, yeah, singing is a kind of music, of course. It's, it's a subdivision uh, kind of music and was the dominant kind of music for a long, long time. It's really interesting to me that in classical music, the most popular kind is the instrumental kind. Uh, our local station that does classical music in Seattle, KING-FM, Uh, has a feature at noontime every day, Monday through Friday, called Box Lunch, B-A-C-H apostrophe S. Yeah, I get it. (laughs) And it's not always Bach, but it is Baroque. And although the vast majority of Bach's output was actually vocal, particularly kind of all the cantatas, um, they rarely play any vocal music. They used to never, but lately, every once in a while, they'll put in a, a little movement from a cantata. But uh, there's this aversion to it. There's far more people who will listen willingly to a symphony than to an opera. Which is interesting because it's the opposite in popular music. Almost everybody who listens to pop music refers to the individual pieces as songs, even if they're purely instrumental. There have been sometimes, I think, Surf music was a really early example in the the modern pop realm. And then there's uh, electronica, which started in Europe and then has caught on in certain circles here. But by and large, most people who are listening to popular music, well, listen to singers, so much so that the catalogs of companies who sell selected digitized MP3 versions of things always refer to each track as a song. You know, I have a lot of songs on my phone, you know, I've collected this song and so on, and they're not all necessarily songs. So singing and music get mixed up in that way as well. But for a long, long time, it go back to the Middle Ages, um, yeah, there was some instrumental music, but most of it wasn't considered worth writing down. The serious stuff was the vocal music. 
you get up into the Renaissance and the early Baroque period, it still tends to be dominated by sung performances. I think there's some evidence that in some settings, in some periods, um, instrumental music is what played in the background while you were having dinner <laughs> or that you danced to, but uh, you would sit and listen to the vocal music, much of which was religious, of course, so you weren't supposed to be doing anything except paying attention to it. And, you know, a lot of the most famous and popular music of the 19th century by people like Schubert and Verdi were vocal. But uh, in the 20th century, and since there has been a tendency for classical people to veer away from it. So this is something that really separates the classical realm from the popular realm, this preference for vocal music in the popular realm. And uh, something about this came up some years ago when uh, I was teaching opera in mathematic classes and I would use an opera in a couple of my classes to illustrate a certain point. This was back in my old subject of love and the history of love and I used Verdi's La Traviata which was in a spectacular film version by Zeffirelli which is very captivating although there were some students who would always complain that they didn't like all that music and stuff and they just treated it as a play. <laughs> couldn't really get into the music. But as time went on, I found that there were more and more students interested in opera and listening to it, despite this preference of most classical fans for non-sung music. And it reached the point where in one class, I was assigning the students to write a report on an opera of their choosing, but they all had to be different because these were shared and I wanted them to read each other's. So I would get people arguing that the two of them wanted to do the same composer and were so enthusiastic about a particular opera or a particular composer that they were fighting for it. I heard something on National Public Radio which gave me the key, I think, to understanding what was going on. This was in the 80s, essentially. This commentator pointed out that MTV had created a whole generation which thought of music as properly something you watched as well as listened to. And that it often would have extreme emotions expressed and that it would be often not particularly logical. It would be um, bizarre juxtapositions of events, of images and sounds and so on. Um, and that it would be about emotional release and um, very loud and energetic. And that when people uh, graduated from watching MTV to going into the classical realm, opera would suit them perfectly because it had those same qualities. It had a story, it was often not terribly logical, it was highly emotional, and so on. And I think for a minority of the public, that's still true. Now, MTV has stopped doing music videos, but they still are watched uh, on YouTube and plenty of other platforms as well. And I think that was a permanent uh, connection that people began to think of. You don't have to go to a live concert in order to see a musician perform, uh, a singer in particular. And uh, when we go to the opera, we often see young women in particular, sometimes couples of a man and a woman, but more often just women, sometimes with friends, sometimes alone, dressed up to go to the opera. And these are people in their 20s, typically. And uh, you do not see them at the symphony hall performances, mm. uh, or not nearly as much. So I think that the opera and MTV connection has some validity.
So people might springboard to opera more readily than they would to symphonic music or just instrumental performances. That's an interesting idea. And definitely the connection between opera and music videos, I can see that readily. Yeah, you know, a band like Queen could be described as operatic. Perfect example. <laughs> they really embrace that wholly. Right. But uh, uh, you don't have to go that far even to see it. Uh, a lot of old Prince videos, for example, just aesthetically strange, odd, but very, mm, very art directed, uh, very color palette oriented and all of these things that you would experience at the opera through set design and more bombastic performances and all of that you'll see those in music videos for sure yeah and when i was talking about the students confusing music and songs the other thing that i got was uh, my students had to listen to various pieces of classical music most of them instrumental but many times they would call an instrumental work a song. Mm -hmm. So I'd play a movement from a Beethoven quartet and say, well, this song had a lot of violins playing. Mm. And they just weren't aware that song was a term that had anything to do with only vocal music. Right, yeah. And we crossed that line, I guess, quite a while ago. And part of it, too, I think, is the word sonata, having something that almost sounds like song in it. Uh, I think it's easier to hear a short piece of classical music or a movement from a sonata, for example, and say, yeah, that's a pretty song. So all singing is music, but not all music is singing. All right. Well, we started with sex. We ended with music. And uh, let's talk more about some of these commonly confused terms in the future. But it's nice to package these up into some kind of theme like this. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Paul. Okay. So long, Tom. That's all for the podcast this week. As usual, you can send your comments and questions to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. If you want to support the podcast, buy the book. The Common Errors in English Usage book can be bought online at your favorite online seller at our website, wmjasco.com, with free shipping. Thanks for listening. <laughs>